0: All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Certain places in the world are so iconic that we recognize them immediately when we see a picture of them. Mount Rushmore, or the Eiffel Tower, the Sphinx, the Grand Canyon, the Duomo in Florence, that great sacred shrine, Wrigley Field. And if you've had any experience at any one of these places, then even mentioning them can flood you with emotion. And you remember the kinds of feelings that you had when you you first saw them, when you first experienced them, and, and how they've made you feel every time since. But it doesn't have to be a specific place to trigger memories and emotions. If I say middle school locker room, I bet that fills you with s- all kinds of memories, uh, and with the complex emotions encoded in each of our mental and emotional maps from prepubescence. And if I say <clears throat> newborn nursery, or grandma's kitchen, or dad's car, or mom's jewelry box, or a swimming pool in June, smell of chlorine, See, many of you will immediately get an image in your mind, feel something inside. But even as we have wonderfully happy memories evoked by images and places and sounds and smells, we can just as easily find ourselves triggered by reference to something awful. If I say the DMV. (laughs) the principal's office, or a dark cellar on a stormy night, or turning left out of the parking lot at Kroger on Bardstown Road during rush hour. But I mean, you know, those are more or less easy ones, but but, but there are deeper, uglier ways to be triggered, aren't there? Here's a couple. Tyree Nichols. Memphis police. It didn't take much, does it? Just two words. Just two words to summon a resigned shake of the head, a foreboding in the lump, in the stomach. The commemoration surrounding the 78th anniversary of The liberation of Auschwitz Friday demonstrate the power of memory and why there are certain places in the world that evoke a sense of dread and despair, a sense that evil is very much a part of our world, even if they're places that you've never actually been yourself. Among some folks in our culture who decry the ubiquity of political correctness it has become fashionable to mock trigger warnings. That is, exposing someone to an idea or an image or a phrase that triggers a horrible memory and painful experience. I mean, to mock trigger warnings is an example of the weak constitutions of liberals and woke progressive snowflakes. But. Talking about being triggered is only an observation that there are things in our environment that elicit strong physical and emotional responses within us. I mean, that's not controversial to say, is it? Being aware of and taking responsibility for how your actions, your words, might induce powerful reactions within others. It's not being politically correct. It's it's, it's called being a decent human being. Or in the context of worship, being a faithful follower of Jesus. Our passage this morning opens with a trigger. Now, it may not jump out at you, but it's there all the same. Matthew's readers would have picked up on it. Can you, can you see it? Can you think of what it might be? It's in the very first sentence. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. Now, why does that produce a response in Matthew's readers? Well, think about it. When was the last time Jesus was up on a mountain in Matthew's gospel before today's text? You remember? It's just in the previous chapter. Jesus was, has been out in the wilderness having a wonderful confab with uh, the devil over the subject of Jesus' political aspirations. Jesus has been tempted to turn stones into bread and to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple, and Jesus hasn't fallen for it. You see what I did there? But for the final temptation, Matthew tells us that The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Remember now? What is it that the tempter tempts Jesus with at the top of the mountain? All the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus will just bend the knee, the devil promises him that he'll be Caesar, king of the whole world but Jesus declines, doesn't he? Why? Well, Matthew doesn't say explicitly why Jesus turns down the offer to rule over the kingdoms of the world. However, we get some hints as Matthew brings Jesus back from his time in the wilderness, and he begins his ministry. Jesus, upon returning, as we discussed last week, immediately gets another glimpse of how kings operate in this world. Having come down off the mountain and looking at all the kingdoms of the world, he's reminded how the rulers act. As John the Baptist has been arrested by King Herod Antipas, Caesar's right-hand man in Galilee, simply because Herod didn't like the way John questions Herod's morality. That's the kind of rule Jesus turned down in the wilderness, a a, a realm where one's enemies must be stamped out, where, where, where power is exercised not on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable, but in expediting the interests of the people in charge. Violence and domination are the tools of the kingdoms of the world Jesus wants no part of. So in ascending another mountain in our gospel this morning, Jesus announces his intention to begin to lay out the nature and the contours of a different kind of kingdom, a reign that will stand in stark contrast to the kind of rule Jesus has just rejected. The heart of the passage this morning is commonly known as the Beatitudes, which means Only something like blessings. Regardless of your training or opinion about what constitutes a good kingdom, this list of blessings that Jesus hands down seems like a pretty strange one to set at the heart of a new realm, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted in the pursuit of justice. That's just weird, isn't it? And because this list is so odd, biblical interpreters have spent a great deal of time and dump truck loads of student loan money trying to get a handle on what Jesus seems to be saying here. One of the most popular ways of trying to wrestle this little bit of scripture into submission is to interpret it as as aspirational. Which is to say, if, if you want to be blessed or happy, another way of translating the word, then you need to cultivate these kinds of traits. Years ago, Robert Shuler, the, uh, the, the Crystal Cathedral guy, he wrote a book entitled uh, The Be Happy Attitudes. Eight positive attitudes that change your life. Now, apart from the schlockiness of the title and the heroic level of contorted biblical interpretation, Shuler advances the idea that the Beatitudes are a kind of self-help guidebook. If you really want to be happy, according to this reading of Matthew 5, apparently you need to try to be more... What? Poor in spirit? Sadder? More mournful? Meeker? Try to be more persecuted? Which leads us... With an uncomfortable question for Dr. Schuler, who aspires to those things? Right? I mean, even if you wanted to be more of those things, how, how would you even go about it? You see what I mean, right? The Beatitudes are a, a lousy substitute for some good old-fashioned pop psychology and, 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 and Christian self-help. Whatever that is. Knowing the problems with viewing this passage as Jesus' snappy version of a little personal spiritual tune-up, many interpreters have attempted to blunt the force of this short list by by sort of spiritualizing it. On this account, Jesus is talking about people not in the everyday sense of how they make their way in the world, but about their inner lives, kind of uh, like a, a religious Sybil Trelawney, right? With all the scarves and mist and breathy pronouncements. You need to get your heart right. Your interior space needs a good spring cleaning, an attitude adjustment, a good firm kick in the spiritual pants. But you see, the problem with this interpretation, as popular as it is, is it doesn't take into account where Jesus stands when he offers it up. And what is the nature of the lives and the kinds of expectations of the people who've come to hear him to speak? You've got to think about them and where he is. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is set against the backdrop of a competing version of what kingdom means. In Satan's version of things, the one typified by the darkness and terror visited on the oppressed peasantry in the Roman Empire the rule of a king requires that the people be kept pacified, impotent, kept in their places. All of the decisions of the traditional understanding of kingdom, and and, and the Romans were especially attentive to this, are made with the needs and the desires of the elite in mind. In Rome, it's about making sure that the people on top have as comfortable a ride as possible. Ordinary people in this conception are tools to be used to achieve desired ends for the folks in charge. Or, alternatively, obstacles to be overcome on the way to getting what the ruling class wants. But Jesus is about to offer an image of what God's new kingdom is going to look like the world God wants to see. And it's counterintuitive to people trained to think that the only way to live together is if there are people with enough power to control the desires and passions of the seething masses. So Jesus announces a world that is turned upside down. Now, this political innovation that Jesus unveiled had to have completely confounded his listeners, I mean, the ancient world, by and large, conceived of worth and value as a precise social calculator. We've talked about this before. It, this calculator could render complex judgments on honor and, and, and shame. Your honor or your shame was the social estimation of your value, that value in the community honor was something that you were born with, if your parents were socially and economically prosperous, then you were given the benefit of the doubt as an honorable person. Got a head start in life. Likewise, if your parents were poor or sick, then the same social calculation was made about you. I'm I'm glad to know that we've, you know, grown beyond all of that pettiness in our world. Now, honor and shame were not fixed. They were commodities to be sought, to to be bargained for, stolen when necessary. Things like what family you married into affected your standing. What kind of job you did. What kind of people would invite you to their table, and what kind of people you would invite to your own table? But regardless of the individual calculations, the things that brought honor were wealth, power, and status. On the other hand, the things that brought dishonor or shame were things like poverty, powerlessness, living on the margins. So, when Jesus says that those who will be blessed are poor in spirit in God's new realm, not talking about the faint hearted, Jesus is talking about those who are actually poor, those who are so far down the economic ladder that their spirits are characterized by constant despair. The despair that they'll ever be able to go to bed at night without the gnawing horror of hunger to keep them awake. Or when Jesus says that the new world God is creating will bless those who mourn, he's not suggesting that people go out and find things to be sad about. The people whom Jesus grew up with and lived and worked with, they didn't have to go looking for sadness. On the contrary, the very nature of their existence meant that sorrow, suffering, and grief had already built an evil home among them. Now, what Jesus is angling at is that because oppression isn't what God intended, it should be mourned. And the people who mourn oppression will be blessed because they'll be part of a new realm set up with them specifically in mind, one that conquers oppression. Now, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he's not lifting up the quiet and unassuming as the kind of character trait that Jesus finds interesting. You get a better sense of what Jesus is driving at is if you read it translated as, blessed are the humiliated. For they will inherit a world where God will bless and give access to those who've been left out. A seat at the table for those who've been told they're not good enough. Moreover, blessed are those who hunger and search for righteousness. Isn't a shout out to people who look holier than everybody else. Instead, the word that gets translated as righteousness, dikaiosune, is better rendered here as justice. Justice. That is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for a world in which bread and water are not commodities in somebody's portfolio, but are rights extended to everyone, where where the law isn't an elaborate exercise in deck stacking against the poor and the marginalized. And guess what? You start living as if this new realm of God's work is, is real, as if those who've been stepped on and ignored count as much as the people in motorcades and private jets? And you're going to find out very quickly the extent to which the dominant are willing to go to make sure nobody threatens their hold on power. Heck, the bigwigs can look injustice full in the face and still vote to keep things the way they are. But here's the kicker. When Jesus looks injusticeful in the face, he sees a new world that looks like heaven right here on earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you get the idea, right? Jesus on top of the mountain says, the kind of kingdoms that I was offered out in the wilderness, they seem inevitable now. Like they are the only game in town, kingdoms where money and power are the priority. But I'm announcing a different kind of realm, an upside down world in which people take oppression for granted that it will be turned on its head where the people who've huddled in the shadow of empire will finally get to enjoy the light and warmth of a new sun rising in a world reborn. The Beatitudes aren't quaint little self-help nuggets that you can cross-stitch on your grandma's throw pillow- pillows. Pillows. The, the revolutionary announcement of Jesus that the world we take for granted as the way things are always going to be, where rulers lie, cheat, and steal because nobody stare, dares to stop them, where the hungry have their food stamps reduced, where the stranger in the land is no longer welcome, all of that is going to be displaced in favor of something newly created, something that couldn't stand in starker contrast to the kingdoms of this world the one offered to Jesus on that mountaintop in the wilderness those worlds this new realm this new world will bless those who've had a difficult time recognizing happiness So difficult, in fact, that if it came and sat down next to them at the supper table, they wouldn't recognize it because they've glimpsed it so rarely. The light shines in the darkness, Isaiah tells us, and the darkness does not overcome it. And though you and I aren't responsible for generating the light, we are responsible for reflecting it to the world. And when we do, I just have to tell you, it's it's gonna look outrageous. It's gonna look outlandish, Like, like, like the upside down, like nothing the kingdoms of this world could ever even imagine. we can imagine, as we've heard Jesus talk about it. Amen.